You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Loop Podcast. I'm Brian Basiri-Tarani, and today we will be going over hand fractures and dislocations. I urge everyone to watch this episode on YouTube because there's a lot of really good pictures that can help with understanding the complex anatomy. Some topics will be hard to explain in audio only, but I'll try my best to paint a picture in your head. And we'll also be using illustrations and anatomy pictures from Physiopedia online. Today, I'll be joined with Dr. Sanem Zahedi. How are you doing? Hi, and hi, everyone. Welcome to your worst nightmare, two Persians with a mic. Should we get started, Brian? Yeah, let's do it. There's no better way to start the conversation of fractures than to begin with the Salter-Harris classification system. The easiest way to remember this is that the letters in Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R, each stand for the different type of fractures that are in the classification system. So let's go over that. In type 1, think S. So the fracture is sliding through the growth plate. In type 2, think A. So the fracture is above the metaphysis. That doesn't invade the epiphysis. In type 3, Think L, or the fracture is low or below the metaphysis. That involves the actual epiphysis. In type 4, think T, so the fracture is through the epiphysis, the growth plate, and the metaphysis. And in type 5, think ER, or erased. In this type of specific fracture, the space between the metaphysis and epiphysis is erased because the fracture is actually either a crush injury or an impaction where there's an impacted bone. Yeah, I've used this since I was on my ortho rotations in med school. It's been quite handy and helpful. All right, let's move on to trauma. And let's talk about the Gustillo classification. And just like in lower extremity trauma, the Gustillo classification is applied to upper extremity trauma. So let's review that. Grade one injuries refer to fractures that are open, but is less than one centimeter. Grade two injuries are defined as open fractures with wounds measuring between one to 10 centimeters. Grade three fractures are then classified as A, B, and C. So grade three A fractures have wounds that are greater than 10 centimeters with comminution, but there is adequate soft tissue coverage. Grade 3B is a little bit different. It's the same thing as 3A. However, you have extensive periosteal stripping that requires soft tissue reconstruction. Now, grade 3C, the same thing as B, except you have an associated vascular injury, and that's a scenario where you have critical limb ischemia. Sanam, what are the antibiotic regimens for lower extremity fractures? The antibiotic regimen for upper extremity open fractures are the same for lower extremity open fractures. The American Society of Orthopedic Surgeons recommends for grade 1 to 2, you do 3 days of antibiotics, versus for grade 3, you do 5 days. For these small grade fractures like grade 1 and 2, management for the open fractures would include irrigation in the emergency room, splint, and short course antibiotics like we just talked about, which is like three days in an elective operation. Because in terms of timing, the studies haven't shown that the time to operative debridement or administration of antibiotic therapy ultimately affects outcomes like infection, malunion, or osteo. Now, versus for higher grades like grade 3, they have poor outcomes if they don't undergo emergent surgery, get antibiotic debridement, and most importantly, don't have early reconstruction. What about routine elective hand surgery cases? Should we be giving antibiotics for that? This was on last year's in-service exam, and it's a little bit confusing because skip protocols 
always talk about giving antibiotics before surgery? No, specifically antibiotics are not necessary for routine, clean elective hand cases, even in patients with diabetes. Although diabetes is a known risk factor for surgical site infection in orthopedic surgery, several series have shown that there's no difference in infection rate between patients with and without diabetes. Now let's shift gears and go into hand anatomy a little bit. There are some really nice illustrations from an article from 2004 out of Michigan from Dr. Stephen Haas that describes this nicely. Yeah, I'm going to try to make this a little simple for everyone to imagine. Let's start with talking about the PIP joint. So a good way to think about that is to consider it as a box. The ulnar and radial collateral ligaments are the sides of the box, and the volar plate is the bottom. The collateral ligaments originate on the distal end of the proximal phalanx and insert on the volar third of the middle phalanx. The volar plate proximally thickens to form a pair of check rein ligaments that originate from the periosteum of the proximal phalanx inside A2 pulley and inserts distally on the middle phalanx where it becomes confluent with the collateral ligaments. Now there's another ligament in this whole picture called the accessory collateral ligament, aka ACL, not the one that's in your knee. This ligament also originates at the distal end of the proximal phalanx with the collateral ligaments and inserts on the volar plate. This ligament is often described, but in reality, it's very small. And when you're in the OR, it might be hard to find out. To complete this analogy, the top or the lid of the box is the central slip of the extensor mechanism. This inserts at the dorsal base of the middle phalanx. So now that we painted a good picture in your head, you can easily think of this box and think about what would happen if there was an injury. If one of the collateral ligaments is disrupted, i.e. only one side of the box, there typically would not be a dislocation. However, if there's disruption to at least two of the ligaments, or two sides of the box, for example, the joint is likely to be dislocated. Despite this, collateral ligaments and the volar plate usually don't require repair since neocollateral ligaments form over time, giving the joint enough joint stability. So sometimes splinting might be enough to keep the joint in place, until this neocollateral ligament forms. Now that you have this nice picture of this box in your head around the PIP joint and all the ligaments, Senan, do you want to talk about isolated dislocations of the fingers? Sure. Dorsal dislocations are the most common joint dislocations in the hand, and it's secondary to axial load with hyperextension. This can be associated with or without a palmar lip fracture, but this is inconsequential from a stability standpoint since the middle phalanx is completely intact. This is typically reduced by applying longitudinal traction. Once reduced, the finger is re-examined for stability, and if it is stable, the patient should continue with early protected motion with buddy taping. It's important to allow motion immediately after reduction so as to prevent finger stiffness. And if after the reduction, the joint is unstable, then the patient obviously needs an extensor blocking splint at 10 degrees more flexion than the point at which it becomes unstable. Each week, the splint is extended by 10 degrees. If the finger cannot be reduced, like any other fracture, open reduction is then indicated. So Brian, what about volar dislocation? Volar dislocations are far less common than dorsal dislocations, but can be problematic since it involves avulsion of the central slip from the dorsal side of the middle phalanx. Three weeks of continuous PIP joint extension with static splint with an open DIP joint motion is started usually. It is important to keep the DIP joint open so the lateral bands can continue to glide, and that helps prevent stiffness overall. 
At three weeks, static splint is exchanged for active flexion and passive extension. And at six weeks, active extension is begun. Sanam, what about for lateral dislocations? Well, these injuries result from a rotary force tearing the collateral ligament and often the dorsal capsule and volar plate. So once it's reduced, if stable, then you can use a buddy tape for protected early motion. But if a piece of the collateral ligament is inside the joint space, this is going to prevent you from doing concentric reduction. Makes sense, right? Something's blocking it. So this can be indicated by slight widening along one side of the joint. And this then would often require open reduction. Okay, great. That's pretty much all you need to know for PIPJ dislocations. What about isolated fractures of the proximal phalanx, Brian? These fractures typically involve the articular surface and therefore reduction is needed to align the joint or else the digit can develop early arthritis or rotation. This can be achieved open or closed, but open approach is more definitive. If the open approach is elected to be used, it's important to maintain the collateral ligament attachments since this might be the only blood supply to that bone fragment. Fixation can be achieved with small screws or K-wires. As long as the fracture is stable, Protected early motion is instituted with splinting until the fracture is healed. Now that we covered isolated dislocations and touched on isolated fractures, let's talk about the dreaded combo of fractures and dislocations of the PIP joint. Sanam, want to kick it off? Yeah, absolutely. So for fracture dislocations, the treatment depends on the extent of the fracture. This refers to the 30-50 rule. And the PIPJ stability is dependent on the amount of intact joint surface. I've heard of the 50% rule, but what's the 30-50 rule? It's all these rules we have to know. So the 30-50 rule is that fractures that involve less than 30% of the joint surface are almost always stable, whereas fractures that involve more than 50% of the joint surface are usually unstable. And fractures between the 30 to 50% of the joint surface are more variable and they're considered tenuous. So this is the 30-50 rule established by Mikkel Frisch. It's just focusing on the amount, the percentage of the joint surface that's involved. But the fractures can also be further categorized into volar rim, dorsal rim, and pylon fractures. And pylon fracture is a fracture that involves both the dorsal and the volar rim. So let's start the discussion off with volar rim fractures. A volar rim or lip fracture of the middle phalanx is the most common dorsal fracture dislocation pattern. The stability of this fracture, again, depends on the 30-50 rule, and you're going to hear us say this a lot. But the small fracture fragments can safely be ignored, and early range of motion with extension block splinting leads to good outcomes. Sometimes this can be hard to see on the x-ray. A subtle sign on lateral x-ray called the V-sign can be an indicator of a subtle dorsal subluxation. This refers to the V-shaped gap between the dorsal portion of the PIPJ. This is pretty hard to explain on the podcast, so if you guys can take a look at our YouTube video and see for yourselves with the images, it'll make the conversation make a lot more sense. But in terms of if more articular surface is involved, it's more likely that the middle phalanx will sublux dorsally. This is largely dependent on the integrity of the collateral ligament and volar plate as they insert on the middle phalanx. Now, Brian, since I've confused everyone, how about you tell us the various treatment options for a PIPJ dorsal fracture dislocation? Sure. And as with all treatments, let's start with the least invasive and go through the progression and end up with the most involved and complex treatments. 
In select minor injuries, buddy taping and figure of eight splinting may be sufficient if the injury is stable. You can consider extension block splinting alone as long as the flexion required to prevent subluxation is not for too long of a period and the flexion is not too pronounced so that you don't cause PIP contracture. Most injuries are stable with 25 to 40 degrees of blocking. The goal should be to reduce the block by 25 degrees each week after injury, otherwise PIP joint contracture will ensue. Now, Sanam, what is extensor block pinning? An extension block pin is when you drill a K-wire in the head of the proximal phalanx, which effectively prevents the PIPJ from extending. Usually it's pinned so that it blocks PIPJ about 30 degrees from extension. And it's important to pin the joint when the PIPJ is fully flexed so you prevent tenodesis of the central slip. This is useful in non-compliant patients who you think will not wear a splint and totally eliminate any human factors. To be honest, in our hospital, that would probably apply to the vast majority of patients. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Close reduction using percutaneous pinning can also be considered for tenuous fractures, but this can be challenging with small bony fragments. After the pin is removed, you can transition to an extension blocking splint. So Brian, what about doing the pinning open? Well, that could be done, but often these injuries involve comminuted small pieces of bone. And if you're exposing the fragments of bone, you lose the intact periosteum and other soft tissue that can help for stability. And also the periosteum is useful for blood supply. So if there's one large segment of bone, then you can consider using a one to two millimeter screw for fixation. Some people talk about cerclage wiring techniques, but that could be challenging to secure the bone fragments in a fixated position, especially if you have a comminuted fracture. Mini plate fixation has also been applied to these injuries, but the concept of putting a mini plate under the flexor tendon is not really intuitive, and it can lead to adhesions and tendon irritation and theoretically can contribute to tendon rupture. Now let's move on and talk about dynamic external fixation. That seems to show up on the in-service exam every now and then, so what is that? Oh, I love talking about this. It's actually really fun to see the patients post-op too with their dramatic results, but Dynamic external fixation is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically an X-fix that has an element of controlled motion. This is really the best of both worlds. You have stable reduction in fixation, yet you allow the patient to move safely. This has been described many decades ago, but as time went on, we figured out how to make it better. Essentially, pins are placed to block the middle fouling subluxation, and rubber bands apply constant longitudinal traction, further preventing displacement of the bony fragments. What about open reduction internal fixation? Is there a role for that here? Uh, it can provide anatomical reduction of the articular surface, but due to the exposure and the morbidity of performing an open operation, patients tend to have more joint stiffness. Now let's move on to more advanced reconstructions. Brian, what is buttress reconstruction? Buttress reconstruction refers to resurfacing the articular surface of the PIP joint and includes volar plate arthroplasty and hemihamate resurfacing arthroplasty. Let's start with volar plate arthroplasty. This is typically performed for unstable middle phalanx base fractures and it involves 50 to 65% of the articular surface. And this can also be used for late reconstructive options if the patient presents late. This option is actually contraindicated in children who have an open growth plate, aka open physis. During surgery, you will remove the bony fragment and place a palmar plate to fill the defect. What about a hemihamate resurfacing arthroplasty? 
Hemi-hamate resurfacing arthroplasty is useful for unstable dorsal fracture dislocations in which open reduction internal fixation is not feasible. The goal is to restore the volar base and the middle phalanx using the dorsal distal hemi. After exposing the joint through a volar shotgun approach, you can look that up. I think there's a good picture that we'll include. The recipient site is prepared by debriding the comminuted fracture segments. The defect is measured, and then the hamate graft is then harvested through a dorsal incision and finally secured in place with two or three screws. It's important to recreate the concavity of the base of the middle phalanx to prevent continued subluxation post-op. I think there's a pretty good picture of that too. That concept has always been a little bit foreign to me, but just have a picture of that in your head and you'll have a better idea of what's going on. All right, moving on. Almost there. Sanem, what is a pylon fracture? So pylon fractures are central comminuted fractures that involve 100% of the articulating surface of the proximal phalangeal head. By definition, these are highly unstable and require operative treatment. Because if you think about it, they involve both the dorsal and the volar rim. So sometimes diagnosing them can be difficult with plain film. So there's a low threshold to get a thin one millimeter cut CT scan. And the treatment includes, my favorite, dynamic X-fix. And the construct is removed four to six weeks after fracture consolidation and after healing is confirmed on x-rays. Arthritic changes and pin tract infections are common complications after these types of injuries. And you can imagine, right, because you have 100% of that joint surface involved. And although open reduction internal fixation can be done, it is technically challenging. A PIPJ arthrodesis is an option for very severe pylon fracture, but it is reserved as a last resort when there's no other viable treatment options. Yeah, that's kind of like nothing else we can do, so let's just fuse it. Now, that's a lot on dorsal fracture dislocation. What about volar fracture dislocations? Well, volar fracture dislocation is not common, but it's hard to treat. These injuries often involve the insertion of the central slip, so treatment is really focused on restoring the central slip. Closed reduction with clay wires usually does the job to correct the joint subluxation and sufficient to reduce the associated fracture. Okay, we've literally beaten PIPJ's topic to death. Now let's move on to the thumb. What do we need to know about thumb fractures and dislocations, Brian? Let's start with Bennett's fracture. This is an articular fracture of the base of the thumb metacarpal resulting in two pieces. The two pieces are the thumb metacarpal and one fracture fragment. This is important to remember, especially when differentiating a Bennett fracture from a Rolando fracture. The Bennett fracture is really a fracture subluxation type of injury. The fracture fragment first undergoes dorsal radial trapeziometacarpal subluxation due to the effect of the abductor pollicis longus, then undergoes adduction due to the effect of the medial thenar muscles. This in turn narrows the first web space. Treatment starts by attempting reduction. Reduction is done by putting the thumb into axial distraction, pronation, an abduction of the first metacarpal shaft while simultaneously applying external pressure at the radial base of the metacarpal. For fragments less than 20% of the articular surface, closed reduction and percutaneous pinning of the CMC can be done. If the fracture is bigger or cannot be reduced, open reduction and internal fixation is indicated. Sanam, what about Rolando fracture? A Rolando fracture is similar to a Bennett fracture but instead you have three or more bone pieces. And the difference between that and Bennett is Bennett, you have two pieces. You have a fracture fragment and the rest of the metacarpal. 
with a Rolando fracture, you have two or more bone fragments and then the actual metacarpal. So basically either three or more pieces of bone. The reason I keep saying three pieces of bone and two for the Bennett is the way to remember it. With Bennett fracture, you have two syllables, Bennett. So you can think of it as you have to have only two pieces of bone, a fracture fragment and then the metacarpal. With a Rolando fracture, you have three syllables, Rolando. So you have at least more than one fracture fragment and then the metacarpal. So at least three or more bones. Hopefully that helps you guys and didn't make you guys more confused. Another emphasis is that in a Rolando fracture, there's more than one fracture line. One is transverse and extraarticular, and the second is intraarticular, and it splits the epiphysis into two segments. This is depicted as a Y or T configuration. Since there are multiple small fragments of bone, closed reduction is pretty challenging, so open surgery or arthroscopy is usually indicated. Okay, Brian, you talked about a Bennett fracture, but what is a reverse Bennett fracture or baby Bennett fracture? That's actually a fracture of the dorsal ulnar base of the fifth metacarpal. Since the extensor carpi ulnaris inserts onto the dorsal ulnar base of the fifth metacarpal, the classic deformity of a reverse Bennett fracture is a proximal and dorsal subluxation of the metacarpal base. This is often missed on routine three-view radiographs. As a result, Bora and Didesian recommended an AP view with the forearm pronated 30 degrees from fully supinated position. This position shows a good profile between the sublex fifth metacarpal and the hamate. This is similar to the reverse oblique view. Similarly, a lateral view with 30 degrees of pronation can be helpful. If it's a more complex case, you can consider getting a CT scan. The different views of x-rays are annoying, but this is a question that came up, and I think it periodically comes up once in a while. And Every time you see that question, you're like, are you serious? But- <laughs> no, but you pointed out a really good point. And the one thing I will say to add on is whenever you're trying to shoot an x-ray, if you just look at your own thumb, if you picture the plate as the table, just imagine how are you going to get that thumb metacarpal to show up easier on a plate. Yeah, I do that on the in service every year. I just put my <laughs> hand and just play with my joints and all that and see what what? All right. All right, we're almost there. So a reverse Bennett fracture or baby Bennett fracture is essentially a metacarpal fracture. Sanam, what are some other metacarpal fractures and what are some other considerations we should know? So the general guidelines suggest that the more distal and more ulnar metacarpal fractures are better tolerated and may not need surgical fixation. More degrees of angulation is tolerated in the more ulnar digits. So a good rule to go by is that the index finger metacarpal can tolerate 10 degrees of rotation, the middle finger 20, the ring finger 30, and the small finger 40. The ring finger and small finger have carpal-metacarpal joint mobility, and that's why they can tolerate that larger angulation. The small finger metacarpal may even tolerate up to 70 degrees of angulation as long as there's no extensor lag. An impaction can lead to shortening and or angulation, which is tolerated more than rotational deformities. That's important to know. And the way to remember this is because of the pinch function of the hand. Similarly, shortening is well tolerated as long as there's no extensor lag. So when would you consider operating on a metacarpal fracture? Good question. Surgery is indicated when malrotation causes scissoring of the affected digit, which in turn will affect the neighboring digits. If this happens, this can affect overall hand function, which is an indication for operative intervention. 
And the operative techniques include either percutaneous pinning, plate fixation, lag screw, intramedullary nail fixation, X-fix, all of which have their own pros and cons. And you can refer to a really good CME article by Drs. Wong and Higgins from 2015 to read more about that. All right. Well, that's it for today. That covers hand fractures and dislocations, and that's a pretty big topic. But keep in mind, we did not cover distal fractures of the hand or fingertip injuries or amputations. Additionally, we did not include wrist or carpal bones, so that'll be in our other podcast, so stay tuned for that. If you like our review and think it was helpful, please spread the word. Tell a co-resident, tell a friend, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop. See you guys later.